Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Basic Christian Theology series. We're in part two today called Christ and the Authority of Scripture. I said in the introduction that everything has to start with Christ if we are doing Christian theology. That's absolutely true. But before we get to Christ, we have to ask ourselves, well, what do we believe about Jesus, and how do we find out about him? What is the source of our theology on Jesus? Unfortunately, you and I can't walk outside, walk next door, and knock on Jesus's door, and expect him to come outside getting ready for work, and say, oh, hi, I want a cup of coffee, let's talk. <laughs> You see, Jesus gave us something so that we could find out about him and the theology that he gives us. So where does our theology come from? What is our source? That would be the Bible. You see, the words of Christ are found in Scripture, and that verifies and establishes the authority of the 66 canonical books of the Bible as being inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore true. On account of this, we consider the scriptures to be the only infallible source of dogma and morals. Now, somebody is going to say, Pastor, that is nonsensical. You are arguing in a circle. You're saying that the Bible says that Jesus says that the Bible is true, therefore the Bible is true. Isn't that kind of like saying, well, the Bible says the Bible is true, therefore the Bible is true? <laughs> Not quite. I know it sounds that way, but saying something like that assumes that the Bible is just a book. The words of Christ, as found in the Gospels, were actually spoken by our Lord. That's the key difference here. The authors of the Gospels were eyewitnesses, or in the case of Luke, collectors of eyewitness accounts, together relating to their audiences what Jesus taught during his earthly ministry. So when we read John 14, 26, where Jesus says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's not just a book saying something. That's not just a line in a script somewhere. It is a historical fact on account of the eyewitness report that Jesus Christ actually said this. At a point in time in real history, Jesus Christ promised that the Father would send the Spirit and inspire the apostles. And who is this Spirit? Well, Jesus also says in history, John fifteen twenty six, The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So, in a point in time in history, Jesus Christ really said these words. And if I am going to be a Christian, a Christian, I will say, okay, that means that the writings of the apostles are authoritative. Especially when he talks about the Spirit. Regarding the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, 
says he bears witness about Jesus Christ, and he is the spirit of truth. This is also going to be true regarding the Old Testament. In John 5 verse 39, again, I'll never tire of saying it, this is a real thing that Jesus Christ actually said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Having said this before the Apostle John wrote his Gospels, of course the scriptures available at the time were what we know as the Old Testament. So we have Jesus saying what the Apostles are going to say, their message is going to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, being the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit is going to make sure this is inerrant. In the Old Testament, which bears witness about Jesus, like the New Testament, will be protected in the same way. So Jesus Christ, the central figure of our faith, of Christianity, points to the scriptures as having what we will call primary dogmatic authority. The Bible is the source of religious truth for us. What we as Christians believe comes from the Bible and the Bible alone. Nothing has that same guarantee of relating infallible, absolute truth to us the way that Scripture has. So as he promised the Holy Spirit would teach the apostles and make sure they remembered his words, there can't be any contradictions or errors in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit, being the spirit of truth, is not the spirit of errors or lies. And the Old Testament, which also bears witness about Christ, has the same guarantee of truth. The apostles say that it is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. Does God breathe out lies or mistakes? Heaven forbid. Now, there are sources that we should call secondary dogmatic authorities. If the primary dogmatic authority given to us by Jesus Christ is the Bible, then we are going to believe what the Bible says about these secondary authorities. They assist us in teaching the faith and demonstrating the truth. But because they are not given the same guarantee of infallibility, they must be subordinated to and accountable to Scripture. If any of these secondary dogmatic authorities contradicts Scripture, then they're wrong. And wherever they make up doctrine that adds to what the Scripture teaches, well then these additional doctrines are to be disregarded. But insofar as Jesus has provided these secondary sources through the word of truth, the word of God, we can say that they demonstrate the truth of what the scripture teaches. They don't determine it, right? Somebody out there that is a biblical scholar does not determine whether or not the Bible is true. He shows that it is true. So he verifies it. Still, to place them at the same level as the word is to fall into arbitrary, opinion-based dogmatics. So we have a primary dogmatic authority, the scriptures. Then we have secondary dogmatic authorities, 
And we have a broad tertiary one that we'll get into. That would be things that only apply to individual Christians, never to the church at large. Our emotions, our spiritual experiences, some subjective things. Their role is to verify to a single person the various matters of faith, not to formulate nor prove doctrine. So they, like the secondary authorities, are accountable to the scriptures and answerable to the scriptures, but also to these secondary authorities. Let's get into it, because I've said authority a whole lot, and source and word a whole lot. Let's get into what some of these are. The first secondary dogmatic authority is tradition. Our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends will claim that tradition, with a capital T, is equal to scripture. I know, I know, the Eastern Orthodox will say scripture is a part of tradition, but that's kind of a distinction without a difference. What they mean, though, is that the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth, as 1 Timothy 3.15 says. On some level, according to these denominations, the church must have the same kind of infallibility as the scriptures. And St. Paul does instruct the Thessalonian congregation to, quote, Hold to the tradition that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. They believe that these are evidence that their magisteria pass along the oral traditions and infallible definitions of the faith. And that includes ecumenical councils, the teaching of different church fathers, the declarations of the Pope, etc. The problem with seeing it this way is that tradition is shorthand for today's recognized tradition. The modern Catholic and Orthodox churches, they have to pick and choose from various teachers and councils in Christian history because they often contradict each other. Their interpretations of scriptural passages are different to one another, their theology is different, their morals are different, and a lot of times it's mutually exclusive from one another. The Roman Catholic tradition says that the Pope is the infallible head of the church on earth. Eastern Orthodoxy says that is not the case. Both of them have capital T tradition, but these traditions are disagreeing, mutually exclusive. And even before the Great Schism of 1054 AD, you had various church fathers disagreeing with each other. Augustine famously denied free will. Chrysostom affirmed free will. A lot of church fathers would talk about justification by faith alone, especially in the early apostolic fathers. Later church fathers said no. And instead of seeing these differences and these disagreements as contradictions and thus a proof of fallibility, these denominations have to juggle which fathers and councils and doctrines they accept and which ones they reject and which ones they abstain from commenting on, especially the thought that uh, church doctrine changes over the time. They love to claim that it's unchanging, but... Here we are with a lot of changed definitions and changed doctrines and things that they'd rather you ignore. But if tradition is equal to scripture, this wouldn't be the case. You would just accept 
all capital T tradition, not just some of it. The magisterial denominations have to set a standard comprised of men who naturally differ, you know, popes, councils, archbishops, in order to find which capital T tradition is the right one, they'll say, oh, sure, we don't have to accept everything every church father said, but we have a standard in our modern magisterium to find what the real tradition is and what to declare is the real tradition. But you're relying on the same guys that are disagreeing with each other. So it's fallible. There must be a standard by which all these councils and theologians and papal bulls and everything are judged a perfect standard. We're given that perfect standard with the words of Scripture according to Christ's promise. All tradition can really do is organize and discover the truths of Scripture and put it out there as easily understood theology. Uh, for example, the small catechism, Nicaea's definition of the Trinity, other things like that, they can help people understand what our Lord teaches through the teaching ministry. But it still has to be subordinated to Scripture. Now, another secondary dogmatic authority is nature. There is such a thing as natural theology and natural law, informing our beliefs by observations from the world around us. Psalm 19 verse 1, for instance, tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. And we have to rely on some of our senses to understand what the Bible is talking about. For instance, we are told that God made mankind male and female in Genesis 1.27, but the verse assumes that we know what male and female are. I should be able to look at a mommy and look at a daddy and say, ah, yes, I can get this right. The mommy is the female, the daddy is the male. Some theologians and other thinkers, however, believe that this puts nature at the same level as Scripture. The old adage goes, God teaches us using two books, Scripture and nature. The more science reveals, the more we can supposedly understand what God means by various things presented in the Bible. One might go so far as to discuss the topic and doctrines of free will and predestination through things like genetics, neuroscience, and psychology. But the problems with putting natural theology at the level of scripture are the same as the problems with tradition, except even worse. Yes, we learn about the natural world through our own discoveries and from teachers, but if we rely on our own discoveries, we have to admit that we are relying on ourselves when we are capable of error. It takes quite an arrogant man to say, I perfectly understand and see the surroundings. I don't make errors when it comes to observing nature. Yes, you do. Yes, you have. I have. And if we rely on physicists, biologists, other guys in the scientific community, well, half the time they disagree with each other over one thing or another, and the other half of the time they're advancing anti-Christian, absurd doctrines like Darwinian evolution. So natural theology 
it makes these errors based on flawed perception, or else it assumes that non-believing scientists are without error so long as their beliefs can be pigeonholed into the scriptures. Making matters worse, unlike tradition, the scientific community is extremely unreliable. You might say that that sounds ridiculous. After all, we have the march of progress through science. A Whig theory of history is applied to the natural world. But no, not only are they plagued with non-believers, every now and then entire worldviews are thrown out the window in these great upheavals. Models are shown to be unworkable, so they drop them like a hot potato and make a new one in its place. For example... At one point, every physicist held to Aristotle's theories of motion as proven truth. Then every physicist held to Isaac Newton's theorems as proven truth that contradict Aristotle's theorems. And now physics are developing in the quantum field, and everything Newton taught is superficial at best. So if we're going to claim that nature reveals God just as well as the scripture does, we have to arbitrarily pick and choose which quote-unquote natural theologian we must adhere to, and that demonstrates fallibility. The same, by the way, can be said about history. History is important, but it's not binding in theology. Which historian's personal opinion and interpretation do you choose to determine truth? Do you go off of some quest for the historical Jesus skeptic? Do you go off of Michael Heiser and his obsession with the ancient Near East? Do you go with traditional historians, skeptical ones? They've all got their own angles here. We don't have to do that. Nature can only demonstrate the things that exist which scripture speaks of. Men, trees, conscience, etc. We don't have to submit to atheists to see that this is the case. Now, going off the manuscript for a second, natural theology also includes natural law. When I talk about the Bible as the only source of dogma and morals, that is also included. Natural law will show you that there is such a thing as theft, there is such a thing as murder. Here's what that looks like. But when people get into natural law ethics, Oftentimes you get disagreements, too, from natural law people. There are liberal theologians who say, well, bonobos have matriarchy, and they have free love, so why don't we? That's nature, buddy. Uh, animals don't have to get married before they have sex. Oh, look, Nietzscheans say, oh, look at how animals dominate each other, and the strongest survive. We need to be like that. That's our ethics. No, no, I don't have to do that because the Bible tells me something different. <laughs> Again, nature can only demonstrate the morality and the actions which Scripture is speaking of. We still need the infallible source, the Word of God, to be our primary dogmatic authority here. Now, a third secondary dogmatic authority is reason. St. Paul teaches that God's attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. That's Romans 1 verse 20. And that's not just observation of the universe. 
Isaiah 1 verse 18, God famously says, Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Most denominations thus conclude, whether implicitly or explicitly, that human reason is capable of understanding and formulating theological truths in addition to Scripture. Oftentimes, denominations do this secretly, interpreting Scripture according to their reason and the theological superstructures they make up with their super-big brains, instead of restricting themselves to the plain meaning of the Bible. Yet, just as with tradition, and just as with nature, Christians have an absurd history with reason, proving that it is not promised to be free from error. Logic says whatever you want it to say, and in theological discussion that leads to these arbitrary human opinions being presented as dogmatic fact. The use of reason justifies total determinism. Humans don't make any free choices, let's all go be Calvinists. The use of reason also justifies teaching absolute free will. All human choices are made freely, let's all go be Arminians. The use of reason here, showing you mutually exclusive worldviews and establishing denominations from there. Which one do you pick? I guess you gotta go with which one you like more if you're going to say reason is equal to scripture. Not only that, though, it also has led to a lot of heresy. Reason and its use in church history gave us Gnosticism, Arianism, Nestorianism, Apollinarianism, Monothelitisms, and a whole host of other isms that shipwrecked the faith of countless souls. A lot of people are in hell because they followed a smart guy. It has a worse track record than capital T tradition, and that's saying something since capital T tradition has bound countless Christians who didn't know any better to spend most of their lives, you know, praying to saints and fasting, thinking that relics got them into heaven, etc. and so forth. Now, it's true that reason plays a role. I'm not saying it's not important. If a man doesn't believe in the law of non-contradiction, A cannot equal non-A in the same way in the same time, he may very well be a very silly man that says arbitrary things. We run into the same problem. He might say Moses is a pickle and a man at the same time, and the pyramids didn't actually exist, therefore Egypt is Rome, and Jesus is a bird. That's Stupid. A total rejection of all reason is just as absurd and dangerous as holding reason to be equal to Scripture. Yet the use of reason, and indeed all of philosophy, is relegated to verifying that the Scriptures mean what they say. Like tradition and nature, it has to remain a secondary dogmatic authority. A good way to put this would be that these are the handmaidens to the scriptures. Tradition, reason, and nature, all of these being handmaidens and subordinated to holy scripture, are used by God to teach people what the word says. 
And there is a tertiary one that I mentioned, a third order dogmatic authority, emotions and experiences. Emotions are an important aspect of human nature. It's a gift from God. It's not to be confused with truth, though. They can assist individual believers in their Christian walk. If you feel guilt over a sin that you commit, and you're driven to go to confession and hear absolution, where you hear the gospel, and then you feel that guilt go away, your emotions are verifying to your heart that, yes, Jesus forgives you of your sins. Maybe somebody has a dream, too, when we talk about experiences. Maybe you have a dream where you hear angels singing God's praises and encouraging you to stay with the Lord. Well, maybe that happened in real life. Maybe you had a real spiritual experience, and maybe you didn't. But here you are being a more devout Christian and being driven to go back to the Word and have a stronger faith. Good for you. But these sensations, these emotions and experiences have to be subordinated to Scripture by the individual Christian, lest he be led astray by his sinful flesh or by lying spirits. This leads us to the topic of enthusiasm or God-within-ism. Holding your experiences and emotions to be equal to Scripture. And it, that renders all of the Bible to be obsolete. Somebody who reads a biblical passage and feels bad about it, and then reinterprets the passage to suit their emotional whims, has placed himself above God and denied that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, as John 14.6 says. Such an individual who says, I dislike this truth, so I modify it. Somebody like that is kind of admitting that they are their own God. Why even call yourself a Christian? And the more extreme enthusiasts proclaim to have these spiritual experiences, visions, voices, angelic visitations, whatever the case, and then they go about trying to bind other Christians to believing whatever message their experience relayed. That's where we get modern Pentecostalism, the Mormon cult, and many, many, many other aberrations in the history of the church. Like tradition, it fails based on mutually exclusive claims. Who do you go with when it comes to uh, your theology based on somebody's experiences? Do you go with Joseph Smith? Do you go with Muhammad? Do you go with, I don't know, the guy that came out with a new translation of the Bible, quote-unquote translation, saying that he saw the secret final chapter to John's gospel? All these people have different theologies and their visions say different things. You can't trust all of them. Somebody is being deceived. So the same way that tradition and nature and reason fail on account of opposing theologians, naturalists, and philosophers, so does elevated experiences. I am not infallible. My personal spiritual experiences are not infallible either. And just like my emotions, just like tradition and nature and reason, I must subordinate them to Scripture. So let's summarize here with our theses that we put at the end of each of these. Remember, you can go to verylutheran.biz. You can download the second basic theology PDF. 
goes straight to the bottom of the page and there are our theses for easy remembrance. One, Christ guaranteed the veracity and authority of the Bible. Two, the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible's authors, ensuring that Scripture is infallible and inerrant. Three, Scripture is the only source with these promises and protections, so it is the only infallible source of dogma and morals. It is the primary dogmatic authority. Four, other sources of theological formulation are secondary dogmatic authorities at best. They cannot generate or determine truth, but instead can only organize, discover, and verify what the scriptures say. 5. Thus, anything taught by tradition, nature, reason, or experience which contradicts or adds to the theology presented by the scripture must be rejected. So begins our discussion on scripture. Next lesson, we're going to speak on handling the scriptures correctly, so we can actually discover theology from it. Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and Amen.